Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Oftentimes, you know, with certain clients, you know, the design process is a necessary evil to get through to get that checkbox to get a permit. The design team is an, is an obstruction. So if I had the Thanos moment of being able to snap my fingers on something, then, you know, appreciating the value that we give back to the world would be one of them. If people understood and valued architecture the way they do products and design, when you, you think of the impact buildings and the built environment has on the world, whether that be gross domestic product embodied in operational carbon emissions, you pick a metric and they're enormous and they're things that we take for granted and that they're things that I don't know if we see value in as a culture. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voices you heard in our opening are my guests, Chris O'Hara, PE, founding principal of Studio NYL and facade director at The Skins Group, and Bradford J. Prespo, FAIA, director of the Boston office of Studio NYL. Studio NYL is committed to providing unparalleled whole building structural and facade design services and doing so in a unique way. Studio NYL is located in Denver, Colorado, with satellite offices in Colorado Springs, Boston, and Minneapolis. Chris O'Hara has a passion for architecture. He particularly enjoys working on buildings that incorporate structures and skins into a holistic building design. Currently, Chris remains active in the engineering and design community and is a frequent lecturer at architectural schools across the country as well as many AIA and facade-related conferences. Bradford J. Prespo, FAIA, is advancing the profession through his practice, advocacy, and educational efforts in the use of cutting-edge design technologies, high-performance design, and the incorporation of maker culture into the design process. He has practiced internationally, is a sought-after speaker, is frequently interviewed, and is an educator via his detailing workshops, higher education classes, design juries, and mentorship of emerging professionals, something we have in common. I recently saw Brad and Chris at the Spark Conference in San Diego for their presentation, Wicked Fast, Fast Tracking Project Schedules and Construction Document Accuracy and I thought it would be a valuable discussion to bring to you. So this episode will be a little different from the stories that we typically share. Today, we'll take a deep dive into the experiences and insights that Brad and Chris have uncovered through their involvement with Fast Track projects. The quicker the project can be completed, the sooner the client can start making money. 
which results in less time for design professionals to do their job. Or does it? Since necessity is the mother of invention, how can design professionals reimagine their process and workflows to deliver better and faster? Chris and Brad will share their experiences working on wicked fast projects and the novel approaches they developed to ensure the project schedules were met without compromising work product accuracy. This discussion will include case study examples of improved design documentation and process using computational design, as well as on-site efficiency using digital fabrication, prefabrication, and panelization. Gentlemen, nice to see you again. Welcome to Detailed. How are you today? Doing great. And thanks for having us on your podcast. Yeah, fantastic. Good morning. I like to break the ice a little bit and start with some kind of broader question. And I knew which direction I wanted to go with you two almost immediately. So in my humble opinion, which is just my humble opinion, change, innovation, forward momentum can sometimes be kind of slow in AEC. That might be even a little bit of an understatement in some arenas. I was fortunate enough to hear both of you speak at a conference, and you seem to be the polar opposite of the slow to change mindset, which is really what attracted me to asking you to be on the podcast because I kind of live in my work life the same way. So my question is, in your opinion, what would you predict will be the top game changers in the next 10 years that will affect the way we work in AEC? That's a great question. Yeah, we do work in a different modality. I think, you know, we're very open to creative solutions and figuring out what's best for the project and the limits to what we do is like what's possible with physics and the limits of your imagination. I mean, that's kind of like guiding principles. In terms of in the next 10 years, what are the, some of the changes or things that we're going to see? We're starting to see like the larval stage or, or the budding of a lot of emerging technologies, and there's going to be a confluence of these technologies. So the modality of practice, you know, from, you know, architecture is a very long industry, you know, all the way back from just stacking rocks on top of each other to, you know, high performance skyscrapers that we have today. But the iterations of design and, you know, process has been limited to the tools of the age. So ink on vellum to, you know, moving digital lines on a computer screen, even to the BIM, which is kind of just like we're just starting out. So BIM 1.0, if you will, we're still moving things manually, you know, on the screen. And there's only so many times, there's only so many hours, there's always so many people that you can throw at that. And so it's a very kind of individual process, you know, and it's a very slow process to transform. And so the, in the next 10 years, you know, with, with these emerging technologies, we're going to start to see machine learning, I think, be able to help practitioners iterate much quicker. So think of ChatGDP or BARD, right? And so both those massive companies are throwing tens of thousands of engineers, you know, at this problem. And so there's finally this, this S curve, exponential curve of growth that we're seeing. And folks like Hypar, are starting to utilize text inputs into chat GDP type or, or large language model machine learning process where they're able to export out a digital model of whatever that text prompt was. And so while it's a, it's a proof of concept at this point, one can extrapolate the idea of iterating much quicker to not only generate forms, but options to optimize based on various inputs. So if you had, you know, carbon or cost or, or whatever as drivers, right, you can cycle through those much more. And so we can get a much richer outputs and it will actually free up the designer from the monotony <laughs> of moving those digital lines around manually in a BIM or CAD environment to be able to explore the full potential of the design space that we've been trained to do. And if you think about like what we're doing today in terms of maybe that step just above BIM, that is probably you know where we're at of using things like computational design, whether that be Grasshopper or Dynamo, where we're taking that information, the eye of BIM and 
applying parameters, algorithms, and calculations and checkers within our models to start that iteration process. And that's a lot of what we're using on our projects to speed that workflow where and I used to be able to maybe do a dozen design iterations in a week. Now I'm doing hundreds in a day just because we're able to put some of that intelligence into our model and move knobs and levers of which ones are more important to us at more time and, and seeing how it affects the design. And then we just kind of say, okay, we like this one, print, move to the next one. And you just keep cycling through. And that ability to cycle through options faster and faster, and that's what we're seeing already. And then as that input gets easier, whether it's be simple text prompts or voice commands, rather than having to have people with the technical expertise to actually code that in, that's where the speed is going to really move. This is not one of those things where a computer is going to design my building and there's going to be no emotion in it. There's always the craft that goes into the algorithms is the craft that goes into the ideas. When I say craft, I mean mining a contractor's brain, the superintendent who knows everything, and then turning that into parameterized code that we can then iterate from. And then we all get together and review these options and say, oh, well, this one's really smart. This one's really dumb because computer doesn't know smart from dumb. That's kind of our job. I think the other one I'd want to add to that is the changing and evolution of 3D printing technologies. Whereas, you know, filament is starting to give way to fiber reinforced polymer carbon fiber things with more strength and robust nature that we can actually 3d print legitimate structural elements as opposed to you know some weaker plastic things and i you start to see that in aeronautics robotics things of that nature and as always as you kind of alluded to sharice we're usually a decade behind them if we're lucky so it's it's coming yeah, especially like 3D printed uh, concrete technology, right? And the housing crisis is going to likely accelerate the adoption of these new technologies just to deliver housing quicker to more people. Just curious. God, I'm about to date myself. So I remember my first computer that I worked on in an office was a Tandy from Radio Shack. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. I remember it. So I remember the advent of AutoCAD. And it was the second coming, and it was going to be so much more efficient, and everything was going to be amazing. And at one point, I did an apples-to-apples comparison of the projects we were doing on paper at the time, as opposed to the projects, once they were up to speed with AutoCAD, you have to be fair and give them time to know how to work it. And I found that it actually took four times as much time to do the project in AutoCAD than it used to take on paper because on paper you had to make a decision and you had to commit to it. I think you just nailed it right there. The technology is permitting us to do things like say a great Bauhaus, Marcel Breuer type architect would never have done because it was ludicrous to do it. Whereas I think of these buildings that are massive buildings that I see a total set of architectural drawings that are less than 20 pages. Now we can barely get through typical details in 20 pages. So, exactly. you know, <laughs> The technology is definitely bred. We're doing it because we can moments as opposed to doing it because we should. So that editing and what is the appropriate design? We use the word appropriate a lot. That gets lost when you have all these shiny objects you can play with in terms of technology. So marrying good design and appropriate design with maybe avoidance of doing it because I can moments. Do it because I should. Because it got even worse when we moved to you know, Revit and BIM and Mm -hmm. working in the model. And I think that's one of the pieces with the new technology that's missing as people slowly get on board is they're all excited about their new toy yeah, and all these new things you can do. and, And we can be far more creative and do far more things, but the training and the boundaries to keep you on track seem, seem to be missing. So do you think that'll tighten up as we move forward or are we just going to get crazier? Both. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I think really a good process, even if it's computational design, begins with by hand, whether it's a whiteboard, a piece of paper and pencil, just diving in headlong and just modeling stuff isn't necessarily good design, whether that's the process of the pen that, you know, slows you down just enough that you're really being more thoughtful and understanding of what you're doing, whether that's 
the embedded errors that you get when you just start modeling without purpose. Like we used to actually take our BIM models at the end of schematic design and start them over because the iterative process of working in Revit, things don't snap right. All these different elements come together that oftentimes working with that model slows you down, but you still have to think. The computer can't do it for you. If it does, you're probably doing it wrong. You need to put that intelligence in the computer to get smart out. Stupid in is stupid out. So how we frame and organize is often more important than how we do. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So on the other side of the coin, so yeah, planning it out, you know, I I totally agree with you, Chris. I would also say that as practitioners, we don't celebrate the use of technology and really learning programs and software programs and becoming and celebrating like I want to be awesome at BIM or I want to be awesome at Grasshopper or any of these other things. And so right now we have an industry full of practitioners who basically learn the software on the street. You know, they know enough just to get by, just to make something look kind of like it should, but we're only using a a single digit percentage of the total capacity of say Revit. And when you work with folks who just like said, okay, if this is my tool, right? Okay, so back back to the old analogy, like a vellum or pencil or, you know, what Chris is mentioning, like people would like know how to craft and like I remember, you know, spinning your pencil on the on the damn sheet and, you know, making sure that everything was crisp, right? There's a technique and process that you would learn. The same needs to apply to the software tools that we use. And so you can't just dip your toe into the technology of water. If you want to achieve or reduce the amount of brain damage that you go through in trying to put a set of documents together. (laughs) Okay. This is the tool that we're going to use. How can we have the tool work for ourselves as opposed to us working against the tool, trying to force it into a modality that it's not used to working or, or delivering the results that we want. And so if you think of BIM as a, as a database, then you can start setting up database questions and have it do conditional formatting and a bunch of integrating this sort of things and that will take the time, once it's set up correctly, it will take your overall time to produce something down dramatically. And I've seen it happen. And I work with people who play BIM or Grasshopper as an instrument, and they are near virtuosos at it. It's amazing. And the thing that's lost oftentimes, people think you know that we're just doing these calcs willy-nilly. The checkers that we put into our computational design, whether it's a Grasshopper script or a Dynamo script, it's like usually twice as many checkers as there are primary tasks. Is this always similar in construction where you need quality control? There's always these quality control things of because computers are dumb. They execute fast, but they're dumb. So if we don't put in the tools to have blinking red lights when things are wrong or breaking the laws of physics or geometry, then we failed. You know, you could start spending a lot of money fabricating pieces based on a a non-watertight model that you just have to throw everything out, but it does it all fast. So once you set up that process, organize it, it can be very, very useful. And then you talk about, you know, using the tools, right? I mean, the ability to go to like a higher level of development in your BIM models. Like we have a project where the final deliverable from the contractor is LOD 500 model. And the reason for that is the owner understands the value from a maintenance and management of their property standpoint through the future of the property. And as much as it is going to pain a bunch of people to locate every damn screw in the project, there's going to come a day when somebody needs to change something and they're going to know exactly what part number it is. And it's going to save a lot of headaches and potentially having to deconstruct portions of the building. So there's so much capability there, but you have to use it right. You can't just be you know, duct taping it together using the technology. One key thing you said in that just stood out for me, and I see it all the time. I see it in the work that I do because I'm really hoping some of this emerging technology is going to help some some of the tediousness of writing specs. But you talked about the owner getting behind that level of detail. At the end of the day, because I see it exactly, I, I don't draw. I've never touched 
while I played around with AutoCAD at one point. But, you know, I don't do that for a living, but I see all of it. The thing that stands in the way that I see is that until the people with the money, whether it be the owners, the owner of the project, or the firm owners, a lot the time and money towards their staff taking it to that level, that level of understanding of what they can do with that program, or allowing the time to do those things up front to save a fortune down the road, which is an issue in our industry as well. But I see a lot of young people that want to do exactly that, become that virtuoso. But their firms will not allow them the time or training to go there. You know, the owners don't necessarily pay the fees to the design team. Like I look at, like we have a project that I'll leave unnamed to protect the guilty, <laughs> where, you know, we have a contractor saying, your model's not tight enough for this surface that we're trying to fabricate. And then, you know, the architect rightfully is going, we're not paid for that. We don't have the fee to develop this watertight surface for you to cast this material against. That's your job. You've, you've got more fee to do shop drawings than we had as an entire design team, architect, engineers, everybody to design this building. And you're telling me my model's not good enough? That's what we paid you for. And I'm not sitting there complaining that contractors should stop complaining about it, but we need to understand like where the money's spent. Because if you ask me, would I like to take that fee and design this thing like it's a rocket ship? You darn straight I would. I'd love to. That's like my dream, other than the, maybe my attention span wouldn't let me touch as many projects. But the design profession isn't valued as much as the contractor is because the contractor affects more money to the owner than the design team does in their view. Whereas, quite frankly, if we design better, we did more iterations, we checked more options, we investigated, studied more things, we may have saved them money by making just this wonderful design move, this subtle elegance. But when he looks at the table of values on a budget sheet, the design isn't seen there. And that, that's a problem we have culturally. But we love design when it's a phone, as a culture. We don't seem to love it when it's a building, even though that's what I love. But you go to other countries. Like I go to Mexico. We work in Mexico City quite a bit. They love design. When we start bringing up ideas and design, they eat it up. And they're like, yes, go, go, go. Study, study, study. Whereas... Here, if it's a car or a phone, we can get away with it. We just don't always get it in buildings. I think we've needed a culture change in architecture for a really long time. And I think we've also made the mistake of giving up some of our our power on the architecture side in slowly over the years, handing over more and more of what we used to do mm -hmm. to somebody else, delegating design and handing it off because because of the fear of risk. So I don't know what the answer is, but I think we have some changes to make to change that mindset because it is important. So tell me what you mean by wicked fast, fast tracking project schedules and construction document accuracy, because that piece is particularly interesting to me. So that was the, the talk you saw in San Diego, and they wanted something to talk about delivering and things like that when they, they asked us to speak. Originally, there was a version of this from like a decade ago uh, called Ludicrous Speed based on the Spaceballs movie, where I think it outlined like at the time, I think it was four projects that all from competition to finish completion of building was a year. And this one, in the spirit of Brad joining our team and running our Boston office, it seemed appropriate to go wicked fast because, you know, it's Boston. <laughs> the talk took on a couple of different levels of the building process. First, you know, the design and the, our design process and how we iterate through design options and things quickly, which we kind of already started talking about with the computational design, and then how that evolves into improving our and speeding our documentation of how these same algorithm type concepts we use to generate ideas, we can then also actually start developing printed documents. And one of the examples I think we used at the time was the uh, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium where all the bowl side glazing was basically a dynamo script to generate our piece drawings on a shop drawing level, not a design document, but actual shop drawing fabricatable level. And that one, geez, at one point we almost got fired because we were taking too darn long and they had this ridiculous schedule for the shop drawings, which we knew we couldn't hit if we did it conventionally. So we, we spent maybe a month and a half developing algorithms and testing algorithms to get it to work. And we're a month and a half in and we don't have a single drawing and they flew over from London to fire us. And then like the night before they arrived, 
everything worked. The checkers all were green lights. And we had like 300 drawings in like a couple of hours. And they're like, all right, keep it up. And then they left. <laughs> and, you know, we, we did some similar things on like SoFi Stadium where, you know, you think of the surface of the metal skin. We were on the design assist team with Zayner and helped them with the computational process. And we had that set up with all the data and parameters, like even to the point where we overlaid the wind tunnel images onto our surface model, that it would be able to calculate everything on all 37,000 panels. We could recalculate every screw, every brake leg for structural adequacy, including all the perforations in a matter of a couple of hours. And we changed a lot. (laughs) Those were these moments where it's like, this is the speed we can get out of that. And these are massive projects. I just mentioned two stadiums, but all that kind of study and effort that we put into that translates to our everyday now. Like we stealing some of these algorithms and using them on other projects, tweaking them. And then the other part of the talk was, well, how are we faster with better quality control in the field and started talking about prefabrication, panelization, modularity, and how these things come together and may create air and water type buildings, high thermal performing buildings while still going really, really fast. And I think one of the projects we mentioned there was Calhoun Hall at University of Cincinnati. We're doing its sister dormitory right now. But once they said go on the skin on that building, 13 stories, we were able to be weathered in in six weeks. Wow. And what that meant for the schedule, because, you know, whenever we talk about speed, the why of the speed is usually money. It's almost always money. They can say time, but time eventually translates into another unit called money. And, you know, for a school like that, especially, it wasn't like, oh, I can get this out to rent a month earlier and therefore I make more money. This was, if I miss this window, I lose an entire half of a year of revenue and use of this dormitory. So that was a critical element to you have to meet these dates and what do we need to do to meet these dates? And that doesn't even get into general conditions. The fact that we were not, you know, fist cleaning up a building so they can try to start doing chip balls earlier or different things that have humidity and temperature issues when they build them. Being weathered in that fast is huge. So that was really where the talk came from. I would imagine that as you're doing more and more of this level of planning and design on projects, that it's getting, and maybe I'm wrong, that it's getting easier, that you're getting into more and more of a groove, that it comes together more quickly on the next project you do. It definitely feeds the engine. And you know, we're also a little spoiled in that we're like a team of architects and engineers. We're, we're you know structural engineers and facade designers, right? And we're always kind of these extensions of our architects technical departments we're like these enablers if you will and occasional <laughs> bad influence and as a result of not having to do the whole scope of an architectural project we're a little bit more surgical on how we operate on these projects we get to see a lot more than our typical architects do and, and even more than our general contractors like you think of like a superintendent on a project he can be on that project for three to five years whereas during that three to five years i've probably cycled through Two, 300 projects. Some of them are modest little ones and some of them are massive stadiums. But the idea is that we're spoiled and that we're constantly engaging with all these different craftsmen, all these different architects, all these different ideas on so many projects. And I'm not at all shy about stealing their ideas and reusing them. So it's kind of feeds the engine and it's like this self-perpetuating thing of we just get better and better at what we do, the more people we engage. So not all of our listeners are seasoned AEC professionals. We have students, we have non-AEC people. So just real quickly, a quick description of a few terms so people understand what you're talking about. So let's start with computational design. So that's basically a method and process of design where we're using a combination of design parameters and algorithms to help speed up our design process using the advanced computer processing. Maybe because I'm old, I don't know why, but I always liken it to Excel. So for those of you like accountants out there going, well, what you described sounds like Excel. It is. The only difference is the data input starts to become more graphical. And we're able to generate a lot of these parameters, which would in data processing be inputs purely through translating a three-dimensional model into those data sets. And then we're calculating off those data sets. Like even something like I mentioned, SoFi Stadium, at the end of the day, after all the stuff we did in the model computationally, 
my final calcs, and maybe this is just my age, were exported into Excel and I checked them again in Excel. And it's all, you know, different cells that would tell me, you know, green light, good, red light, bad, and it would just conditional formatting and through hundreds and hundreds of checks. And I'd have a summary page. It would tell me, does everything work? It is basically Excel, but for geeks like me or the people I work with, since I don't technically do it, I just feed the algorithms. Okay. Digital fabrication. In contrast to all the different manual processes of putting something together. So this is enabling the use of computers to control various machinery. And so an example that Chris used earlier with SoFi Stadium, for example, it was the deliverable or the information exchange wasn't the PDFs, you know, wasn't wasn't drawings, because that wasn't the best vehicle to communicate 37,000 panels, you know, on a, on a massive project, but it was a data file and a data file was constructed in such a way that the computer driven machinery could read it and get their instructions off of it. And so it's a direct from design to fabrication, utilizing digital processes, whether it be additive or subtractive in nature, but there's a variety of tools, you know, CNC routers, uh, 3d printers or various, various medium as well as uh, starting to get into, I think, casting, pressing, breaks, all this sort of stuff. And so obviously, this is something that other industries have relied upon for decades. I mean, you look at a Tesla factory, right, and those photos from the earnings reports, and it's uh, it's amazing. And you're like, oh, and then we're still cutting things by hand and stuff, you know, in our industries, you know, eventually going to become, you know, much more industrialized. And, and this is the medium by which we can provide those machines with that information. And it's not always just sheet material like metal or wood. It, it's also creating molds and forms that can then accept cast things like a GFRC or a fiber reinforced polymer. So there's a lot of different modalities. It's not just this two-dimensional sheet that we're going to punch holes and cut. Okay, panelization. So when we talk about panelization, we're obviously focused on the enclosure. So we're usually talking about how to get our cladding, weather barrier structure, thermal control layers into something that could be prefabricated or built ahead of time in a shop with that level of quality control, controls humidity, temperature, it's not raining on you, work at waist height so it's easier and not instead of hanging off the edge of a building. And the idea is that we're doing more of that in the shop, less of it in the field, optimizing the cost and quality of our labor versus, you know, like I said, the guy hanging off the side of a building and enable us to spend less time in the field. There's a variety of different levels of panelization that we see. I mean, most people in the architectural world are pretty familiar with, say, unitized curtain wall, where there are you know these wonderful extrusions around the perimeter with gaskets that are able to mate together and get all that performance, as well as the vision glass and the look of the building. We tend to try to push that to another level, especially on our buildings that have maybe a more responsible window-to-wall ratio where we're not creating these big glass ovens of buildings and actually including some opaque. But unlike, say, in a unitized current wall where that opaque portion is like a spandrel glass or basically a poorly insulated bit that doesn't allow solar heat gain, and actually build like a rain screen like you'd see in a stick-built building, you know, light gauge studs, sheathing, insulation, rain screen, or cladding element would be that rain screen. And we're able to integrate that into a panel. Ideally, all is one. Now, there are different versions of it. Some people are just panelizing the weather wall, then putting the finished look or skin of it on in the field. But the ones we are most excited about as far as advancing technology is it it looks just like that unitized panel in terms of its perimeter and having the gaskets and all those performative elements to get these to mate and bond together in the field. But they include all these high-performance elements, and they tend to be on a scale. Like we use the term mega panel in our office quite a bit because the panels are sized as big as we can fit on a truck. And, you know, we lift them, put them on the building like the one I mentioned, University of Cincinnati, Calhoun Hall. That was a mega panel project where, you know, it had a very reasonable window to wall ratio and the panels were 10 feet tall by about 24 feet wide and it goes fast. So that's what we mean by panelization. You know, obviously as a spec writer, I'm always interested in improving our contract documents, our construction documents. And... I would love to hear your insights into where you think, just in the general world, not in your very progressed, advanced world, but for the rest of us people, where you think we are really 
currently going wrong in your advice for ways we can do better in our contract documents, in ways we can maybe start thinking about moving forward? Yeah, a few thoughts on this. I think if we look at the big picture for the industry, in school, you know, the celebrity or the hero is the singular designer, right? It has the vision. But most of the time is not necessarily spent on crafting that vision or the rendering. It's project delivery. It's actually translating these complex ideas into a visual form and written form that other folks can then translate again into something that they understand and then start putting up bricks and sticks in the site. So the modality shift is needed, I think, at a very high level to embrace the idea of project delivery or the technical side of the industry. It's not just the design, celebrity, and then everybody else, you know, just oarsmen, you know, trying to trying to get the project done. Projects are hard. <laughs> They're really hard. <laughs> And if you don't have a dedicated team who can feel like that aspect of the industry is something that's valued, then why would you want to be part of that portion of the industry? And so I think we're seeing a lot of deficit now in folks that are really have the experience and can take and synthesize complex ideas and distill them down into digestible forms that, that don't look intimidating or don't read intimidating or something like this. And so it is a very big picture, right? So there's, there's got to be a seismic shift in the industry that celebrates project delivery and, and the technical side. And then within, you know, going focusing in a little further at a practice level, it's the same, same kind of issues. If you're at a design-driven firm, you know, it's going to be about, you know, winning the next job, the marketing engine is there, but the resources aren't necessarily devoted to retaining talent, developing talent, or talent transitions because people retire and, and stuff. So you always have to have this pipeline going within a company. And so if you don't invest in your people or processes culturally, then again, you're going to get this apathetic approach to like, oh, I have to put my time in doing CA and stuff like that, or or putting a set of drawings together. It's like when in fact there's a step change in the development of an architect's experience and understanding of tectonics when they go from CDs to, and spend a couple years in CA fighting that fight, giving a damn about the design and wanting to get the details and transitions right and holding the contractors accountable, right? You know, setting that example. Because if you don't care, no one else will. And then you can take that back and, and feed it in. So, you know, firms firms need to give a damn and they need to put the resources behind it. Then you can start developing that culture of quality and tectonics and the firm can have the narrative and it becomes something sellable, right? And that you're known for. So it's not just the uh, renderings, you know, because we like to say renderings don't count. It's, you know, the built work and you want to be proud of that. And let's deliver it. I could not love more that you just said that. <laughs> we really do. We need that higher level change in school before you even get in. Let's add insult to injury right now. Our baby boomers are retiring in droves. Gen X is very small, which means these two humongous generations behind me, some of them, the best and the brightest, are being asked to step up. 5, 10, 15 years sooner into these positions of responsibility, nobody ever would have let them do before. But they're not coming out of school with that real working knowledge. Well, and don't leave out the fact that our buildings are now drastically more complicated than they were 20 years ago. It just gets worse. That mindset of changing how we're educating our design professionals, how our firms are supporting and empowering them, they can. They can learn it 10, 15 years sooner. They have all kinds of tools, and I love working with younger professionals. But if your firm won't support you getting that real-world education, you're not going to get there. And so we have, we have a very interesting dynamic going on in our industry right now because of that generational shift, because technology is skyrocketing forward. And we need our firms and our, our schools to change to meet that. In the information that you sent me, you mentioned novel approaches developed to ensure the project schedules were met without 
compromising work product accuracy. Can you give me a, a couple of specific examples of how you did this? I think the first thing I'd add to this is the novel approach isn't the technology. People are playing with the technology all the time. I think the novel approach is bringing in the experts and craftsmen into our design process. One of the things we talked a lot about a bit in that talk as well was you know, how we procure these more complicated, more integral systems that need to go fast and the use of a design assist process. And design assist is basically where you're bringing in critical subcontractors in earlier off of less developed documents so that the craft of that team can inform the design. Now, this is important because most people think design assist, like most of our general contractors see design assist because great, we're going to get a jump on shop drawings. And no, it's not early shop drawings. This is a collaborative process where we have the craftsmen, the people who are really going to build our building at the table, talking to design of what is the optimal location for our edge of slab relative to this cladding system? And how do we want to build it? What is our sequence? Where does a crane want to go? You know, you drew this perfect, wonderful detail in three dimensions and it's great, but where's my hand get in there to turn the screw? These are things that, you know, real world professionals can bring to our process. And you also got to look at it from the standpoint is we go all the way to 100% CD and bid out, you know, this thing and where you know, the owners feel like we're going to put competitive advantage, we're going to get them all bidding against each other, and we're going to get savings that way. Well, you really don't because you're genericizing the design to the point where we can get multiple people to bid it, whereas contractor A may want to do it this way, and contractor B may have a totally different technology in their shop that approaches it differently. When I get them in early, I steer the ship to what they do best. We get the best value out of that team that we could possibly get by making their life easier where we're able to. And I'm not saying we make it easier everywhere and just design towards them. It's, no, this is still important to us architecturally. You're not getting that wish list item. But there are so many easy moves that don't affect the design that either don't affect or maybe sometimes even improve the performance of the system that we can get in if we have access to the craftsman. And I feel like there's a lack of craft and a lot of what's done you know you always hear contractors complain about the designers and their ivory towers and i want the more boots on the ground people like we, we tend to gravitate towards young people who've had design build experience in their architectural training where they actually understand what it feels like to build something and get your hands dirty and you know a lot of our r&d is getting involved with contractors and getting as much knowledge as we can soak out of them into our designs. And we don't get it perfect every time, but we at least think about the right questions as we're designing it. So, you know, when you talk about the novel approach, that I think is it. And everything else stems off because that feeds the parameters and algorithms we do in our computational design. That affects my hand sketches. That affects the way I lay out a building. And it changes everything. And an example, because, you know, talking very theoretical, like we're doing um, a tower for MIT with uh, Nada and Perkins and Will. And it was a mega panel design. We talked about this beauty of panelization. And of course, we're the enclosure people. So we're talking about how to improve thermal performance. And knowing that we're going to do mega panel, we have a lot of opaque. We're going to run these panels vertically. The floor to floor is only 10 feet. So we knew we can get like a 30 foot tall panel. And one of the things you see like in a unitized curtain wall or any kind of panelized system, the stack joint where the panels mate on the horizontal line. So at your floor line, that's where the most thermal loss is. And we're doing these studies and showing how much we can improve the thermal performance of the building by doing these panels vertically. And then the sub comes in, you know, during the design assist and goes, well, we don't want to do it that way. We want to do all the panels horizontally. And we're like, no, didn't you hear my compelling argument? All this great thermal data here. I got more pretty images I can show you about it. And he goes, well, if we do it horizontally, since the floor to floor is only 10 feet, I can use a low boy truck and set all the panels on the truck vertically in the orientation that's going to be in the building, because this is in Cambridge, so there's nowhere to put anything. The truck pulls up, the panel comes right up off of the truck and goes onto the buildings, whereas opposed to on a vertical panel, it would have to be laid flat, it would have to be tilted up, twisted, manipulated, and put up on the building. And he goes, you know, by my math, we're saving about 30 minutes a panel, which like, well, 30 minutes doesn't sound like a much or that much until you realize it's 20 plus stories. And all that adds up because it's not really just time. It's the cost of the tower crane. It's the tower crane not working on, say, mechanical equipment or loading floor. And it 
blew our mind to the point, like, I think we even included the lecture you saw of how our initial interpretation of what would be most efficient on the building was wrong as we engaged the craftsmen and really understood it. So getting them involved, even something like SoFi Stadium, one of the things we were able to put in the algorithms for the cost on the perforations was understanding the machine time it took to punch each hole, change tools, et cetera, in its process. And since you know we had the surface and the perforations, we could run an algorithm and tell us how much it would cost. And by suddenly changing hole sizes or reducing the, the number of tool changes, et cetera, we could say exactly what it would cost per panel based on that data. But I have no ability as a designer to have that data unless I have them on board that tells me what it means. There's just so much knowledge out there and the people who are building our buildings. You know, I think back to my youth, you know, the first job I did, I remember the advice I was given by my mentors, like, well, if you've got nothing to do while you're on site, pick a foreman and trail him and ask him questions. Try not to annoy him though. He might punch you because I was growing <laughs> up in New York. But I learned more from that those foremen on my first site job than I did through all the office time designing. It's just, there's more to learn from the people actually building and it makes our design smarter, mm-hmm. makes them more affordable, makes them faster, makes everything better. If But we gotta wanna learn it. Out of the box thinking and real world lessons learned. Give me a couple of case study examples of some specific big problems you worked through and how you solved them. I mentioned a term before, or an idea rather, that what we're limited to is technology or physics uh, and our imagination. And so you have emerging products that are starting to be incorporated into buildings and stuff. And so if we think about FRP profiles, we're very less thermally conductive than metals and stuff like that. So we start to use those conventionally as standoffs, you know, for facade systems within insulation zones. But yesterday we were at a client just having some detailing fun and doing a red line check and just, you know, just sort of banting about and talking about conditions and ways to improve them. One of my colleagues, Philippe, was at the at the whiteboard, you know, was just drawing away. And I don't know if he knew it or realized it, but he, he kind of created a detail as a completely novel approach to uh, roof terminations instead of using, you know, cold form construction and, you know, the conventional way or big billets of wood, you know, to build up a roof edge or something like that. He had this really elegant incorporation of FRP profiles that when assembled in an interesting way, it eliminated all that construction, right? Because, you know, if you look at the estimates, you know, parapet cost per linear foot, you know, is, is really high and cold form construction and all that is, is really expensive. And so, this boiled it down to some Z's and an angle along an edge. And we're just like, damn, you know, so I'm now detailing that on another project because it's like, why not? It works. It's going to work well. It's going to perform a lot better. It uses less materials. But if we weren't there just brainstorming and, and thinking through it and having this box mentality, I doubt that this would have ever come up because the way you do a parapet is, you know, by doing it this way. And so that happened yesterday and that was a great experience. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of it. And quite frankly, the parapets, the the weak spot on every building, it's not just the junction between two trades, but usually three trades. We've got coping. And if you've ever worked with like FM Global, you know, they start quadrupling your loads at the those transitions because it, it's where the claims are. And it's the most things go wrong. And generally we're using highly conductive materials to create these transitions. Uh, you know, we're at the top of, say, aluminum curtain wall coming right to a parapet cap. So the aluminum is conductive. And, you know, we, uh, we grade it thermally breaking it where the glass is. But what happens when you do a hard 90 at the top of the glass? How do we get the insulation on top of there while still transitioning the air and weather barrier? We've been playing with like fiber reinforced polymer diving boards and stuff like that. But I think what Brad's getting to is we now have shapes, you know, through these rain screen technologies that have been developed that actually have flexural capacity. We've been playing with some of this with a company called Strongwell for a while, where they I used to refer to them as like the Kmart of polymers because they just were making stuff, and now they've gotten a little bit better at branding, so maybe they're getting more expensive. But there's plenty of people out there who make these shapes, and we just need to design to their strengths and what they're capable of doing. Just because it says it's a rain screen attachment doesn't mean that's the only thing it's capable of. So. How we think about, you know, why are these details failing? 
Why does it not work? Where is the conductivity? Where is the challenge of how do I wrap my membrane around what? And some of that you really just got to get out there and play with these because if you ever get like in you know some of these transition tapes and flashing strips that come with different membranes, they're really hard to bend around small discrete elements. Like we we do these fiber reinforced polymer diving boards quite frankly, and we started changing the way we detail them because it's like wrapping a DVD for a present. You know, you ever try to wrap something really <laughs> thin and long with wrapping paper? It's hard and that stuff's super thin, right? Now try to make this stuff thicker and asking a guy up in the air at the roof of our building to try to wrap this stuff around a blade. And how do we articulate that detail and think of it? And, and quite frankly, I'm, I want to start getting people to just start wrapping things like a gift wrap to try to show them what kind of pain we're putting these guys in, like in the office, because you don't see it. You just draw the dashed little line saying AWRB and you move on. And it's not that simple. <laughs> it's somebody's got to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting out and getting your hands dirty is a game changer. Okay. If you had the power, king of the world, power to snap your fingers and change three things about our industry and the way we work right now, how would you use that power? So, you know, the design industry, the building design industry, I mean, we're literally crafting the built environment that everyone experiences. Yet, my wife's a resale agent. So, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm good for her. But, you know, they get 3% of the commission, you know, just for a transaction, and they do a lot of work for it. But that's also like a design fee for all the risk that we put into it. So there's a disproportion. And oftentimes, you know, with certain clients, you know, the design process is a necessary evil to get through to get that checkbox to get a permit. The design team is is an obstruction. So if I had the Thanos moment of being able to snap my fingers on something, then, you know, appreciating the value that we give back to the world would be one of them. If people understood and valued architecture the way they do products and design, when you you think of the impact buildings and the built environment has on the world, whether that be gross domestic product, embodied in operational carbon emissions, you pick a metric and they're enormous and they're things that we take for granted and that they're things that I don't know if we see value in as a culture where I think of the, the power of, of buildings is huge. The shift gears to be more boots on the ground pragmatic. Interoperability of software. Bring it to another movie. There's one magic ring to rule them all kind of moment of everything work together. And to a lesser extent, hell, if I could just get EPDs in the same units would be nice. <laughs> we talk about collaboration of people. We can't even get our software to collaborate sometimes. So if we can get that to talk to each other better, it would be good. And it, it is getting better. Like, you know, obviously with the Grasshopper and Rhino, we do a lot of that software. And there is a way for that to talk to Revit better because let's face it, Revit is our kind of ubiquitous documentation tool. It seems like they've cornered the market on. But if we can get the analytical programs, I mean, the fact that most of our civil engineers work in a completely different base platform than everybody else, it would just make everything better and easier. I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, tell me about one major lesson learned you made in your career that changed the design professional that you are today. For most most of my career, I was really heads down in work, you know, just like focused on the one project, you know, trying to make it be the best and correct and work and all all the things, right? So pouring crazy amount of energy into it. But I wasn't necessarily developing, you know, within the company or just just, you know, just kind of plateaued for a while. And we're actually at a grand opening of a of a recent project. And I was talking with one of the partners at the bar and he's like, Hey Brad, how you doing? And I was like, Man, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm doing with my career. He's like, I just I'm all over the place. And he's like, You mentor so well, like you teach people, you know, he, he went on to the whole things, you know, trying to trying to build me back up. And he said something that literally changed the course of of my career and, and my perspective on what I do. And he's like, you help make people successful. And so focus on that. And so that's literally, I thought about it in the drive home. And I was like, I can help people be successful. That's the thing that I can do. And so ever since then, that has been the driving force behind teaching projects, interactions, you know, is, is how can I help folks be successful? 
to build on what Brad said, at this stage of, of our career and where we are as a business, we are most efficient as a company if I'm doing less and enabling more. Like my ideal day in the office involves me not sitting down and just going desk to desk to desk and just continuing the loop until the day is over. And the ability to kind of take Brad's knowledge or my knowledge or other people like in similar senior positions and get that data to other people so that they can execute more efficiently and they can learn and evolve and do things is, is the most profitable both day one as well as day 100 you know, or day 1,000. The idea that I can solve every problem by just working harder by myself in a corner is wrong. We need more people, one, because you get better ideas, but two, if I can get 10 people working, say they work half of my pace because I'm really experienced and good at this, right? Well, super, but 10 of them is still five times faster than me. So it's huge. I think the thing I've learned from mistakes, whether they're mine or other people's, is it doesn't matter what the issue is. Run to the solution. Mm-hmm. The blame will work itself out later. And sometimes you're going to be guilty and sometimes you're not. And sometimes you're just going to solve it so fast. It doesn't matter who's guilty because it all went away. And I see so many moments on projects where something goes wrong. I don't care whose fault it is. It's irrelevant. And everybody sits there and tries to get in their foxhole and say, well, this is where my documents are. And I covered it right here. And I'm not saying that's not important, but the most important thing is solving the problem. And then once the problem's solved, then we can start having these conversations if, if the insurance people or it's a claim or something like that. But with that mindset, everything that we've ever had in the 20 years of being in business that even had a hint of a claim has always gone away because the problems got solved quickly. Even when it was our fault, it still gets solved quickly. If you run to the problem, it's going to happen. Nobody's perfect. Great advice for anything in life. Final question. As individuals, I think that we all hope to make some kind of mark on this world. And those may be little things with ripples we never see. Those may be bigger things, but we want to leave some kind of contribution. And I call that my world domination statement. It's not really about taking over the world. It's about taking over my world and what difference I can make. So personal or professional, how would you as an individual hope to make a difference in this world? What, what is the legacy you'd like to leave? Well, I want to change the world through design. That's the whole basis of our company. That's how we founded it. Even though you know, I'm, I'm the consultant, I'm way down the list and my name's never on it I, and I don't care. I really do believe good design can make things better. And I'm not talking about the fancy, pretty buildings, and we do plenty of those, and they're great. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But some of my best design moves have been on K-12 schools with modest budgets or low-income housing where we're able to create more dignified homes or a net-zero home that matches the cost of a double-wide. You know, With effort and the right colleagues and people to collaborate with, we can make life better, whether that's a civic place a building an individual is using or living in, I think we can make so much of a difference that way. And that's before I start getting into saving the world through carbon reductions, through better operating buildings, through choosing materials that have lower embodied carbon and all things that are completely within our purview, especially me as a structural engineer and a facade designer. I'm hitting both embodied and operational carbon on a daily basis. I mean, there's so much we can do through how we design. That's really what drives me and the reason... I I have a company. (laughs) So, you know, the legacy to leave behind, you know, is through, through the teaching, through projects, through the advice I try to give my kids, supporting my wife. It's just like, my goal is to position all those around me, folks that I touch or projects to be in the best position for success, whatever that success means for them. That is like personal and, and professional. So how can you listen, synthesize, sometimes not say anything or you know, help provide the platform where folks can grow and be successful, right? That to me, that's the legacy is to leave the world in a better place than I found it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. 
Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.